This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Well, welcome to Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen to our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. Uh, Past shows here at the Legal Talk Network have focused on topics relating to the law of workers' compensation. My name is Alan Pierce. I am a lawyer, and my practice concentrates on the handling of workers' compensation cases. I've been handling workers' compensation cases for insurers and for injured workers for a little over 30 years, and I can safely say that during that time, uh, most of the injuries that I have seen have been orthopedic injuries, and most of the orthopedic injuries I've seen have been injuries to the back. And probably among the most problematic cases that I've had uh, involved serious long-term disabling back problems. Back problems themselves cost employers an estimated $50 billion a year in direct workers' compensation costs and perhaps an additional $50 billion in indirect costs, loss of productivity, finding and training, substitute workers, and things like that. Back injuries also lead to lost dollars for injured workers and their families. Back injuries are among the leading causes of wrongful termination claims filed under the Americans with Disability Act. Low back pain affects about 1 million workers every year in the United States. So I think it's appropriate that Workers' Comp Matters devote some time and probably only hit the tip of the iceberg in the problems surrounding back injuries and disability and costs to both employers and workers uh, by having with us today an expert uh, in the medical side of things, Dr. Joseph Barr. Dr. Barr is an orthopedic surgeon. He has a particular specialty in spine surgery. He's been on the staff of the Massachusetts General Hospital since 1968 and has a private orthopedic practice uh, right now dealing uh, with all sorts of orthopedic problems but centering on the back. Dr. Barr, welcome. Thank you. Let's begin by discussing a little bit the basic anatomy of the spine and try to fit into our topic today uh, the areas of the spine that are most vulnerable uh, to injuries in the workplace. Well, there are several, of course, areas in the spine, the cervical spine that has seven segments or vertebrae. The thoracic spine has 12. The lumbar spine has five. And then we come down to the sacrum, which is the lower part of the spine attached to the pelvis and the coccyx. The part of the spine that interests us most is, in general is the lumbar spine. That's where most of the injuries occur most of the disc problems, and I'm sure it accounts for probably 80 or 90 percent of the disability. We see some from the neck. It's uncommon in the thoracic spine, but very common in the lumbar spine, which, of course, bears more load as we lift things and do things. And let's talk a little bit about the, the disc itself. Uh, you can describe briefly what it is, but in uh, reading reports and records uh, that uh, lawyers do and, and discussing these cases with our clients, uh, you know, we see uh, the phrase herniated disc or ruptured disc, slip disc, bulging disc, herniated nucleus pulposus. Uh, is there a difference or are those all syn- synonymous terms? Well, I don't think they're really synonymous, but you have to sometimes read between the lines. Basically, the disc, of course, is a shock absorber between the vertebrae. And 
it's made up of two parts. If you cut a slice through the disc, there's an outer ring of very tough fibrous tissue called the annulus fibrosus. The inner one-third of the disc is the nucleus pulposus, which is basically a gelatinous type of material. It's tougher than gelatin, but it is uh, filled with fluid and therefore basically incompressible. You can't compress water or fluids. So it serves as a shock absorber, allows us to move our spine and twist and whatnot. Uh, The discs are in the business of absorbing shock and bulging a little bit. So bulging is a relative term. Uh, We go on from there. Uh, Beyond bulging, we get to a situation where the fibers of the annulus start to degenerate and may tear, and then some of of the softer nuclear material, the nucleus pulposus, can push out through. If it pushes out a little bit into the spinal canal, I would call it ruptured. If a large fragment comes out, that to me would be herniated or even sequestered, where there would be a piece of disc material in the spinal canal. What causes the pain? That's a good question. The nucleus itself doesn't have any pain fibers. The annulus, the outer ring, does have pain fibers. And, of course, the nerves are quite uh, sensitive to any kind of pressure or irritation. With a ruptured disc, the first symptom you get usually is back pain, and it may not turn into leg pain or what we call radicular pain for the first couple of days. But as the nerve root gets pressure on it for a longer period of time. There's also a chemical irritation that occurs that causes an inflammation of the nerve root. So there are two different factors operating on the nerve root. One would be pressure and one would be chemical. Are there certain abnormalities or or, uh, conditions of the spine that would make a particular person more prone to a disc herniation or disc problem and could you identify some of those conditions? Uh, and also, how, does the term degenerative disc disease fit into that, and, and what does that mean? Well, de- degenerative disc disease is something we all get starting about age 35 or 40, and uh, the MRI scan has allowed us to really look at this and study it because we can see different fluid densities on the MRI scan, and when the disc degenerates, it loses fluid. It's no longer as good a hydraulic mechanism as it should be. So that we can we can begin to look at that and study that. There are some instances where we see disc problems at an earlier age in a family. So there may be some genetic differences. Those have not been well studied, but we think they exist. Other than that, uh, disc disease and disc degeneration is something that affects all of us as we go through life. In reading medical reports, I come across a couple of words. I've had to rehearse uh, the pronunciation uh, rather than butcher it here and embarrass myself, but a spondylosis and spondylolisthesis. When, when I see that in a medical report, what, what, should the, what is that telling me and what does it mean about my client? Spondylosis is a term for wear of the spine. Besides the disc, we have the the vertebral body, which is in the front of the disc towards the abdomen. And then behind that, we have an arch of bony tissue, uh, the pedicles, the lamina, and the spinous process. And between each vertebrae, there are a pair of joints, one on either side called the facet joints. As they wear and degenerate and the disc wears and narrows, it produces a condition 
we call the degenerative cascade. Spondylosis is a term we use for that. Spondylolisthesis, the, the root spondylo in Greek means spine. Uh, spondylolisthesis, the second part of that listhesis means slipping. That's a condition that occurs generally in people in fairly young childhood, and apparently it's a failure of the, some of the cartilaginous parts of the spine to turn into bone. When we're in embryonic life and in early uh, infantile life, a lot of our skeleton is cartilaginous and not bony, and we depend on Mother Nature to take care of turning that cartilage into bone. With spondylolisthesis, that may not happen, and usually it's most commonly occurring at lumbar 5, which is the lowest lumbar vertebrae, and sacral 1. So we talk about L5, S1, spondylolisthesis, and the L5 body can slide forward on S1, uh, maybe a centimeter, sometimes two centimeters. In very extreme cases, the whole thing can gradually slide off, and that produces a very severe deformity of the back and generally produces back pain and spasm of the hamstring muscles. Okay, so let's say, let's say my client is 45 years of age. He works in a factory. He does a lot of lifting and bending and either may have a spondylolisthesis of the spine or just the normal degenerative changes um, consistent with somebody of his age. He lifts something at work and he has a back pain and he sees the doctor and he's got uh, it's, diagnostic tests are positive for a disc, be a bulging disc or a, a herniated disc and he's got some nerve root involvement. What is the best course of treatment? Rest and leave it alone, treat it aggressively with therapy, medication, injections, acupuncture. Well, you've, t you've talked about a lot of the possibilities. Rest was always the, the number one fallback position in that. In recent years, studies have showed that resting somebody more than two or three days is not effective at helping the back pain. It's better to get them up and moving around. Now, obviously, there are cases where that is not uh, to be done if they've had a fracture of the spine or something like that. We might not move them so quickly. But long-term backrest has fallen in, into disfavor, and rightly so. Uh, so that we go more toward activity. We may sometimes use a support, a corset, or a brace. Uh, we teach them posture, uh, good posture. We get physical therapy to work with them trying to strengthen particularly the abdominal muscles, which are very important for stability of the spine. We try to keep medication at a low level. One of the problems that we see as orthopedic surgeons are people coming in who are addicted to opioids, morphine, Percocet, uh, Oxycontin, that kind of thing. And that's certainly something we want to avoid. That only adds to the problem when you see someone like that. Uh, going on and, and further treatments, uh, the issue of chiropractic sometimes comes up with, with patients. And uh, uh, if I think they're having a disc problem and the possibility of a ruptured disc, I try to discourage that. If it's more of a muscular thing, sometimes chiropractic can be very helpful. Sometimes acupuncture or massage uh, or some of the other physical therapy entities can be helpful. Uh, generally, I would not uh, go right to higher-level diagnostic tests such as uh, a CT scan or an MRI scan immediately. 
unless the presenting complaints are such that I'm concerned about uh, the nerve roots and there may be neurological signs on my physical examination which would push me towards doing diagnostic tests uh, earlier on. The most valuable tool we have right now is the MRI scan, which is extremely good at showing us soft tissue detail. Uh, CT scans mainly show uh, bony detail. They show that very well. You can do myelograms with CT scans. Myelography involves putting dye into the uh, spinal fluid, and uh, that's not... um, done nearly as much as it used to be when I was first in practice. I would probably do 5 to 10 myelograms a month. Now I very rarely do one because MRI has largely supplanted that. If we go on and and diagnose a ruptured disc or a disc that is bulging and irritating a nerve root, then I think about treatments such as epidural steroid injection where we put a type of steroid medication uh, into the spinal column or next to the spinal column uh, near the nerve that we can identify as being the irritated nerve. And sometimes that helps to cut down the chemical reaction around the nerve and cut down the pain that's being transmitted in the nerve root. Does that have a long-term effect or is that basically short-term? In some patients, it it uh, has quite a long-term effect. Uh, uh, and if I'm dealing with a situation where there is a, a disc problem that's not severe, that I think is more of a bulging disc than a badly ruptured disc, uh, sometimes one or two injections given, say, a month apart, uh, are very helpful to getting the patient back on the road to recovery and nothing further needs to be done. Some We haven't mentioned spinal stenosis, and that's a problem we see more in the older age group, but we do see it in the workers' compensation age group, too. Define that for us. Uh, stenosis means narrowing of a tube or canal. Uh, the arteries in your heart can get stenotic. The arteries in your legs can get stenotic. And the spinal uh, canal, which is the part where the uh, nerves and, and uh, spinal cord run down from the brain to the tailbone, if that canal narrows down, it can pinch the nerves or the spinal cord. And there, occasionally, epidural steroids are helpful. Sometimes surgery is necessary to remove some of the bone and tissue around the area to free up the nerve roots and decompress them. And regarding surgery, um I know there's a traditional laminectomy and an open incision and, and excision of disc material. There's microdiscectomy or, or microsurgery. There's been some discussion of some types of non-invasive surgical treatments. Could you give us sort of an overview of where we are today in the uh, most effective type of surgical procedure and what type of injuries respond best? Well, you mentioned laminectomy. Technically, that's removing all the bone in one segment from the posterior part of the spine. We don't do that very often unless we're decompressing a stenosis or a tumor or something like that. We more do a laminotomy, which means making a hole in the lamina so that we can look inside and see the nerve root and see the disc which is pushing on the nerve root and remove the affected uh, part of the disc, which is abnormal. Uh, Microsurgery... Uh, is a relative term. Uh, Some surgeons use an operating microscope, which may give them 
a four or five or more times magnification. I preferred to use a special pair of glasses called loops, which gave me two and a half times magnification, which I found easier to work with. Uh, you can, If you get over magnified, you're looking at such a small field, you may uh, um, damage something that you don't see outside the field. And uh, it also, uh, in my view, took a lot longer than was necessary with uh, a low power magnification. The other things you talked about uh, besides uh, microdiscectomy, uh, there are other injection techniques for a time. Two decades ago, we were doing what was called chemonucleolysis with a an enzyme called chymopapane. Sort of an Adolf's meat tenderizer of the disc. It was a fancy Adolf's meat tenderizer, much more expensive than Adolf's, but uh, did much the same thing. We injected that into the nucleus pulposus, and it would it would uh, enzymatically destroy part of the nucleus pulposus, which would cause the disc space to collapse a little bit. Now, that seems reasonable anatomically. How did that fall out of favor? Uh, it fell out of favor for several different reasons. One was the fact that it did cause some degeneration of the uh, space, and if you injected somebody in more than one disc, they kind of got very accentuated aging. And as the uh, disc narrows, the facet joints override and become arthritic. And so that treatment uh, um, was meant to be applied to one disc space, one symptomatic disc space. It got over-applied. That was part of its falling out of favor. The other thing was that if this material was injected in the wrong place, it caused damage to the nerve and neural structures and caused occasional patients to be paraplegic or paralyzed. And we've been reading about, uh, at least in the in the uh, literature, about artificial discs. Where What's the uh, current standing of that well, mode of treatment? This is the latest uh, thing on the medical uh, area of spinal surgery to put in a new disc. And we don't have any good long-term follow-up on these things. These are generally made out of a combination of metal and polyethylene, the same materials that we use in a hip or knee replacement. We know pretty well we have now uh, 40, almost 40 years of hip and knee replacement experience. We know pretty much how these materials will last and how they perform, and they're doing very well. The spine is a different issue, uh, and I think one of the problems there is the ideal patient for a disc replacement probably is someone who's just injured a disc and beginning to start degenerating it. Well, at that point, uh, they're hard to identify, and uh, I would think it's hard to sell them on the idea of having a very major operation, which uh, it takes to implant the artificial disc. You have to go through the back of the abdomen. Uh, there are big v blood vessels there, the aorta, the vena cava, the iliac arteries and veins, and it's a tough surgical procedure, and my final analysis there, I haven't seen this done long enough to convince me that it, A, has a good place, and B, is efficacious, and C, is safe. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back with Dr. Barr to talk about the case of the day as we put him to the test. So we'll be right back. Want to know more about Legal Talk Network host and attorney Alan S. Pierce? He's nationally known for his expertise in workers' comp and the law. 
appointed by two governors to the State Workers' Compensation Advisory Council on the editorial board of the Journal of Workers' Compensation, leading lawyers across the country with a commitment beyond passion. Find out more about Attorney Pierce on the Legal Talk Network website under About Us. We'll be right back on the Legal Talk Network with more from our host, Attorney Alan S. Pierce, and his guest on Workers' Comp Matters, where we focus on the people and legal issues in workers' comp cases. You can listen to Workers' Comp Matters anytime on your computer or download the show to listen later. We invite you to join as a member to Legal Talk Network so you can get updates on our upcoming Internet radio shows. Welcome back to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters, where we are here with Dr. Joseph Barr, orthopedic surgeon, Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Barr, we're going to take a little bit of a diversion from discussing the back, and we're going to talk about the case of the day. I'm going to describe uh, an interesting case that recently came down from an appellate court at this time in Arkansas, and see if you can figure out how the uh, appeals court ruled. I'm going to refer you to the case of Engel versus Thompson Murray Company. And again, it was uh, in the state of Arkansas. And Mrs. Engel worked for Thompson Murray. And once a year, the company sponsored a bonding event for their employees. And the different departments would uh, gather together as teams. And uh, Mrs. Engel was the captain of her team, and she participated in this event at a lake resort. And one of the things she did was to uh, look at the resort and come up with some ideas for uh, an afternoon of fun for her uh, department in competition with the other departments. On this particular day, uh, she uh, jumped into the lake from a bluff, and in doing so, she hurt herself. She brought a claim for workers' compensation benefits. Her claim was denied by the industrial board in Arkansas, and she appealed. When her claim was denied, the um, court in Arkansas said that in order to be eligible for workers' compensation benefits, a worker, when injured, must be performing employment services, which are defined as necessary for the performance of the job. Well, she took this case to the appeals court, arguing that participation was mandatory. Uh, she was paid, as were the others, to attend, and even though she was Jumping in the lake, she should be compensated for her injuries. How do you think she prevailed? Well, that's a good question. My understanding is that uh, every jurisdiction is a bit different in their workers' comp laws. We have 50 states in the federal government and admiralty rules and a few other things, and they all vary. I, I think in Massachusetts this would be compensable, um, and I would guess the appeals court in Arkansas, probably found against her. Well, you are right and you're wrong. Uh, first of all, your analysis of the varying uh, jurisdictions and the differences is is well put because what may have been the holding in Arkansas may not be the holding. In Massachusetts, uh, we have a specific statute that says purely voluntary recreational activities are not covered. In Arkansas, the appeals court indicated that because her participation was mandatory, because she was paid, uh, that her duties required her to take an active role in the event. It, as they say, it defied reason to assert that she was required by her employer to find a place from which to jump, but not expected to participate in the jumping. So they reversed the denial and they awarded her benefits, which I think would have occurred in Massachusetts because of the compulsory nature of the attendance at this event. Let's get back to the back. 
if we can. Uh, I don't know if she hurt her back uh, jumping into the lake, and I suppose you can. And, and in the work setting, is it is it lifting primarily that is the culprit here in uh, injuries to the back and the low back in particular? Well, lifting is certainly one of the culprits. Uh, people also fall, twist, uh, bend too much repetitively. Uh, we see injuries with people falling off loading docks and uh, things like that, so that you know, almost any kind of injury can uh, affect the back, and uh, uh, sometimes it's a relatively minor uh, twist or something that starts off the uh, cascade of pain and injury and disc problems. It's funny. When you use the word pain, uh, it leads me to a topic that uh, let's get away from, from the objectively injured body part, the disc that is demonstrable on MRI or through other means. But many cases and many millions, if not billions of dollars, are spent uh, in both the treatment and the payment of lost wages for what is described as chronic back sprain or chronic pain syndrome uh, or situations where the MRI or diagnostic studies are relatively benign or normal, yet the patient who for all reasons is credible and believable and has a work ethic, is complaining of back pain to such a degree that he or she cannot function. Give me, if you can, an overview of what is causing this back pain in the absence of hard, objective, demonstrative data that would show something pressing a nerve or something like that. Or is that too difficult a question to, uh, to get into? Well, it's a, it's a complicated issue, and there's, there's no doubt that people respond differently to pain. We see people with a ruptured disc going to work every day and uh, pushing themselves through it. We see others who, at the first uh, instance of pain, uh, collapse and, uh, and take to their beds and, uh, uh, for one reason or another, decide they don't want to work anymore. And it can be very difficult to uh, figure out how much pain they're actually having. You can't measure pain like you can blood pressure and other uh, physical signs. We do have pain diagrams and drawings, and sometimes patients fill these out, and they're very bizarre. They have pain everywhere uh, and many different types of pains, and we we can then begin to understand that they have a different type of behavior towards pain. What's a thermogram, and how effective is that in objectively measuring or, or uh, developing the uh confirmation of pain? Well, a thermogram is basically a look at skin temperature. Uh, you set the dial so that uh, the warmer the skin is, the hotter the uh, intensity. It goes from blue to green to yellow to orange to red. Sort of uh, like Homeland Security. Uh, yes, it does the same. And uh, uh, for a time, uh, a couple of decades ago, this was a popular diagnostic test, and they could show that you had pain in your lower back because it was red, and you had pain going down your leg because it was red. In actual fact, there was very little scientific basis for this, and eventually enough articles got written that there was absolutely no relationship between the thermogram and whether or not someone had pain or whether or not they had an injury, and it fortunately gradually fell into disfavor and I think has now been uh, taken out of the medical system. And when you examine a patient, whether you've been hired to do so as an independent independent medical evaluator or a patient has been referred to you by a colleague or somebody comes to you directly, 
Can they fool you? Are there certain tests or things you can do to determine the relative reliability of their complaints? Yes, there are. I think uh, it's it's helpful to sit down and talk with them for a little while, uh, offer their records to review, and you, you get some sense of the fact that uh, perhaps they're not as uh, um, real as they seem. In doing a physical examination, there are often clues we can pick up on that they react rather uh, uh, vigorously uh, to gentle stimulation, gentle palpation, say, of the back, uh, and they're tender all over. Uh, That is called allodynia, which is a a nice term, and if we use that, it means they're reacting abnormally to stresses that are not usually offensive. In other words, we're not sticking them with a pin. We're touching them very gently. There are some other tests. uh, A doctor in... uh, 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 Canada, Waddell, described some various tests for figuring out who are the people who are genuine and who are the ones who are overreacting. There are lots of reasons for people overreacting, and part of it is the whole system. They may feel they've been wronged by their employer or the insurance company, and they're trying to figure out a way to get even, and getting even in their view may be, I'm not going to do that job anymore, or I'm going to get some money out of it, before I go back to work. And I know this could probably take up another show, but is there not also a sort of an involuntary um, uh, a reaction where the person isn't consciously having those mental uh, uh, thoughts about his, his or her pain behavior, but just subconsciously uh, is reacting perhaps more vigorously than normal? Well, I, I think to give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe that's occasionally the case. But one of the issues with the workers' compensation we see is that it often takes a long time to sift through these cases and this, these problems and come to some kind of result. And once they've been out of work for a year or two or three, many of them don't have other skills to get back to another job, and they get into what we call a chronic behavior mentality. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of Workers' Compensation Matters. I want to thank Dr. Joseph Barr, Massachusetts General Hospital orthopedic surgeon, for joining us. Thanks for listening today. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. Go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.